everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Journey, and I am joined here again today by the lovely Nicole and Rebecca. This week, Rebecca will be telling us all about the case of Om Shinriko, and Nicole will be educating us on the science of biological warfare and how it played a role in this case. Um, This is also the first episode of our two-part cult feature, so that's kind of exciting. Um, I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as there are detailed descriptions of mass murder, terrorism, and biological warfare in this episode. And with that, I will pass it on to Rebecca. Thank you, Journey. Um, So I'm going to get started just by talking a little bit about the history of Om Shinriko and then kind of just get into uh, basically the crime that made them famous and the aftermath of it. So, Om Shinrikyo, and I think I'm pronouncing this right, by the way, but I could be wrong because it is a Japanese cult, Um, but Om Shinrikyo is a doomsday cult that was founded by a man named Chizuo Matsuomoto uh, in 1984, but it wasn't actually called this at its founding. It was actually called Om Shinsen no Kai and was not initially considered to be a cult, but was basically just a new religion based on this man's beliefs. So, Om Shinsen no Kai translates to English to mean Om Immortal Mountain Wizard Association. Um, I did find this in multiple sources, so I think it is the correct translation, but it's still a bit weird. Um, But besides that, um, so the religion began in 1984, and it started out simply as just yoga and meditation classes with some lessons basically about multiple religions, which I'll mention just in a minute, but it was sometime between the founding of this cult or religion and the year 1987 that Chizuo uh, changed his name to Shoko Asahara. So throughout the rest of this episode, I will reference him as Asahara, not Matsuomoto. Um, And then in 1987, they also changed the name of the cult to be Om Shinrikyo, which directly translates to the Supreme Truth. So around 1986, about a year before the name change, Om Shinrikyo began to follow a monostatic order. Um, So basically just a set of rules in a religion based on kind of the beliefs of the person who began the religion. Um, And it combined practices and beliefs of Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, and Christianity. So he was really following all sorts of religions to build his own. Um, But then in 1989... Om Shrinikyo actually gained official status as a religious organization by the Tokyo government. And so it was around this time that it gained status uh, kind of in the religious sector and it began to be considered the religion for the elite. And I'll get a little more into that later. But after receiving the status of being an official or 
recognized religious organization. The religion actually started to get pretty popular with the leader, Asara, making regular TV appearances on like news networks and stuff like that, and also doing public talks at universities about it. He wrote multiple books about their religion, and he even at one point made a 10-episode anime series um, that took place in the, I believe, early 90s. And in the series is kind of where we start to see that there's not so much of an innocent uh, belief by Asahara because in it, he depicts himself as Jesus Christ. So it was in the time that Om Shinrikyo gained popularity that Asahara began, um, as I just mentioned about the depiction of the show, to see himself sort of as a godly figure, more so than just like an organizer of a religion. Um, And he also got more heavily involved in conspiracy theories and more extreme religious views. So one example of this behavior is demonstrated by a book that Asahara self-published in 1982. This book was titled Declaring Myself the Christ. And in this book, Asahara stated that in addition to his belief in Buddhism, he believed that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ and started making prophecies of Armageddon that would start in July of 1999. So this is kind of the first place that we see it's kind of becoming a doomsday cult where one person is making all of these elaborate um, prophecies and then people are just basically blindly following. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Um, if you're Buddhist, you don't believe in Jesus Christ. No, you don't. (laughs) Okay, that's kind of what I thought. I found that very interesting. Yeah, it was, it is very interesting to me as well, how he combined, like, ideologies from, like, Buddhism and other Western religions with Christianity, just because they are so very different from each other. Yeah. But I guess this is just what's happening in the mind of a man who thinks he's a god. I guess so. Um, And did we, because I know we had done like another episode on cults. I think we did the Jonestown. Um, Did we talk about the different kinds of cults? I don't think so. Like Doomsday versus, um, oh my gosh, there's so many other ones. There is, but I don't know. I actually don't think we got very much into that. Okay. Well, if listeners, if you like that, we could do an episode on that. Because <laughs> I just realized that was a thing that we should talk about. Yeah, the psychology of cults is very much its own study. So yeah, that'd be interesting as well. Maybe it'll yeah. be a three-part cult series. Who knows? Yeah, true <laughs> enough. Okay, I'll let you continue. Um, yeah, so after his prophecies of Armageddon, um, in a Sorry, not after, but in addition to his claim that Armageddon was approaching within the decade, he also stated that most of humanity was going to perish, except for a small group of people, which solely consisted of members of Om Shinrikyo, which was the religion that he was building. Um, he stated that On Shin- Shinrikyo members would be the ones to survive and rebuild civilization. So up until the point of Asahara seeing himself basically as a god, the Amshinrika religion wasn't necessarily associated with doomsday prophecies or violence. Um, however, due to the religion being already established and having tens of thousands of members worldwide at its peak in the late 80s and early 90s, 
um, which was when Asahara began making these claims, the followers at this point didn't really push back and they just agreed that what he's saying must be the truth. So it was in the late 1980s, despite the religion boasting a non-material, humble lifestyle, trying to get rid of all of the pleasures that plague man, basically, the organization began collecting pretty hefty donations from its members who are many people were elite and had a lot of money, which is why this was considered the religion of the elite. Um, But they also started selling rituals basically to its members that were to show Asahara their dedication to Om Shinriko. So I didn't find a lot of information about like everything that they sold to their member members, sorry. But one that I did find was that they sold the blood of Asahara as a blood initiation and the people who bought it were meant to drink it basically to be initiated into the cult. Um, and sources say that prices for this blood initiation could go up to like $8,100 American. Holy cow. Oh my God. That's disgusting. Yeah. So it's, it's not terribly sounding just like a religion at this point. <laughs> That's gross. Wouldn't like, wouldn't any of them question and be like, mm, what could I contract, not contract, but like, Drinking the blood of someone else just does not Literally, seem no. Safe. It doesn't seem sanitary, <laughs> and also there's yeah. so many diseases in your blood. Do yeah. not drink yeah. it. Yeah, but also, why weren't they questioning it when they are following a religion that boasts like non-materialism, yeah. and then they're paying for no. this like, and then they're paying for material materials <laughs> to be initiated into this religion. <laughs> Oh my gosh, no thank you. Yeah, so it's like, even from here, before the violence, you can see that it's already getting a bit, uh, it's getting a bit shaky. Um, Yeah. So, as mentioned earlier, this cult was considered the religion for the elite, and this was in part due to the fact that a, for some reason or another, I couldn't actually find a definitive reason, um, a large population of its following were highly educated and respected professionals in like their respective fields. So they had chemists, they had engineers, attorneys, physicians, and basically like any other kind of scientist that you would expect to work in like highly respected fields, like even biologists and such like that. Sorry, I was just gonna say, would that, would they not be the ones to critically think about what's happening (laughs) i know i thought the same thing like it's it's strange that it's attracting such intelligent people but i guess that's just how smart the wording of their yeah like religious practices and books were but no i agree it doesn't make sense So having this high population of really smart individuals made it pretty easy for the group to begin uh, producing weapons and plans, basically, to prepare for this Armageddon. So members of Am Shinrikyo began purchasing arms from Russia. They also bought a machine plant in Tokyo that they ended up converting into a weapons manufacturing plant. And they, at one point, even purchased a 48,000-acre sheep farm in Australia, where it's suspected, based on the chemicals found at the site, as well as the dozens of sheep buried on the site, that members of Om Shinrikyo were conducting experiments on the sheep to try to create uh, the nerve gas sarin. 
1995, Asahara began making predictions that various natural disasters, such as earthquakes and tsunamis, would soon begin worldwide as Armageddon got closer. Um, and it just so happened that not long after he made this prophecy, like it was less than a month, on January 17th of 1995, an earthquake hit Japan. And unfortunately, this only just made his followers believe even more that Asahara was, in fact, a prophet and knew that the end was nearing. So if anything, they just trusted him, like, with their life at this point. So also in early 1995, police began to suspect that Aum Shinrikyo was not an innocent religious organization uh, after police got word that they some of the members had supposedly kidnapped um, an attorney who was working with an organization, I believe was called Parents and Children Against Alm. And it was basically an organization built to try to spread the word of like Alm targeting college students and trying to indoctrinate them into their religion. Um, but they also began hearing rumors about this time that the organization was also manufacturing chemical weapons at one of their facilities. So with the investigation that ensued and the evidence that police found, they decided that they would raid the Amshrumnikyo headquarters on March 22nd of 1995 in hopes to find further evidence that they were conducting some form of nefarious activity. Um, but unfortunately, and this was unknown to police at the time, uh, when they were planning their March 22nd raid, just two days before their planned raid, Amshrumnikyo was planning to conduct a domestic terrorist attack in Japan. So on March 20th of 1995, Aum Shinrikyo would commence a domestic terrorist attack that killed 13 people, but injured and severely injured over 5,000 more. So on the morning of March 25th of 1995, five members of Aum Shinrikyo would get on five separate subway lines all throughout Tokyo that were all headed to the same station. It was the Sujiki or Tsukiji station in central Tokyo. Each man, uh, so each of the five Aum Shinrikyo members were carrying a small bag of liquid sarin that was encased in a newspaper basically to hide what they were carrying. And they also carried an umbrella that had a very sharp tip on the end of it. When they got on the subway, these men would ride for a few stops before basically accidentally, but purposefully to them, uh, dropping their newspaper with the sarin inside. And then when they stand up to get off the train before leaving, they would stab the newspaper on the ground with their um with their umbrella, which would ultimately puncture the sarin sack inside. And as soon as these bags were punctured, it very quickly began to release sarin gas as it mixed with the environment um, into the train cars as they exited the subway to get into getaway cars to obviously avoid the damage. Um, so because it's liquid when it started, do you know how it turned into gas? Like, is that just something that happens once it comes into contact with air? I didn't find much about that, but I, like, I watched a video about this attack a couple months ago and had no idea it was related to this cult. And I believe they did yeah. say that, like, it, it is just it mixing with the oxygen of the air that, like, the gas is kind of released because it's such a potent smell and liquid, basically, that it it's really sensitive to 
environmental changes, but I could okay. be misinformed, but I'm pretty sure that's how it works. <laughs> okay. Also, um, sorry to interrupt. I just so, want to clarify. Yes. I don't know if I misheard okay. that, but was that the morning of like March 20th? I don't know if I heard March 25th, but that could just be me. Sorry. Yeah. It was March 20th of 1995 that the attacks occurred and okay. the police were planning their raid for March 22nd before 22nd. <clears throat> they planned that. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So the effects of the sarin gas, once it was uh, released in the train cars, was almost instantaneous on anybody nearby. Um, it caused people to cough profusely before just passing out, and some of which ended up dying as a result. Um, but as the subway continued towards to Tsukiji Station, sarin gas would be released from the subway cars at every stop, just because it was in the air at this point. So, of course, when the doors open the gas would go out. Um, but it was also carried into the stations and into the streets by people who were trying to flee the subway because they knew something was wrong, but they had gas uh, or sarin particles on their clothes and skin. So they brought it with them as they exited the subway. So not only were the train cars when the attack took place directly affected and rendered people severely ill or deceased, but because of it being carried into the subway stations, many of the victims who died or became severely ill also did so because they were in the subway station or on the street above them trying to help those who initially became sick, thinking they just got ill of something else. And they really, at this point, no one had any idea that such a dangerous and potent nerve gas had been used. And so it ended up affecting a lot of people trying to give medical attention. Upon discovery of the source of the gas, the bags of sarin on the trains, um, two of the subway employees who were ordered to go and try to retrieve it so they could dispose of it actually died in the process of trying to retrieve it because of how just how potent this nerve toxin is. So, given the investigation that was already being conducted by police on Am Shinrikyo, it didn't take them very long at all to realize that they were very likely connected to this terrorist attack. On March 22nd of 1995, police went on with their already established plan to raid the headquarters of Am Shinrikyo, which was located at the foot of Mount Fuji, and... It is at during this raid that police would make significant finds at the compound that made it hard to suspect anyone but the members of this cult in this terrorist attack. So some of the stuff that they had found included two tons of chemicals. Um, there were 10 different chemicals found in total, but two tons of all of them. Um, I couldn't find the full list of chemicals, but some of it included acetyl acetonitrile, which can be used as a solvent for sarin and was also found in the residue of the sarin collected at the subway on the day of the attack. They also found a large volume of isopropyl alcohol and sodium fluoride, both of which can be used when making the sarin. They found large vats of ethyl alcohol, which is not used in sarin, but it can be used to make other nerve gases. And it was reported that sarin wasn't the only thing they were making at this time. They also found a vat of an unidentified brown liquid that, at least to the extent of my research, officials never really released what it was. They just they took it out in hazmat suits, making the assumption that it's dangerous because that's a fair assumption. 
Um, and they also found a lot of sodium cyanide, which is a very deadly poison. In addition to the two tons of chemicals, police also found a Russian poison gas meter, a Russian MIL-MI-17 helicopter on their compound, um, millions of dollars worth of gold and U.S. cash, and more than 50 people lying in what they called a chapel, all of which were severely malnourished and many of which were on the brink of unconsciousness. I feel like the number was likely higher um, but police said that at least six of the individuals in this chapel were being held forcibly and against their will. Um, they were being held in tiny windowless rooms and were taken straight to the hospital, thankfully. Were these people, I don't know if you talked about this, were they like being experimented on for the sarin gas? I didn't or Do you find, know why they were there? I didn't find that they were being experimented on. I will touch briefly on like one of the victims later um but basically from my understanding the people that were being held forcibly were previous members of the cult who wanted to leave because they recognized something was wrong and as a result they kidnapped them and wouldn't let them leave the compound wow that didn't even cross my mind but that makes so much sense yeah it's overall like i am surprised i never heard of this group given how bad they were yeah, they seem very intense. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the police did note that the they did take the six people to the hospital, but they didn't take just those six people because they thought they were in the worst condition of them all. Um, but they actually only took six because they were the only ones who would actually agree to go to the hospital. Others refused treatment and just didn't cooperate with um with police, and they ended up saying that they were voluntarily fasting because they were supposed to train themselves to overcome natural desires, such as eating or hunger. Sorry, um, it did note that these individuals were severely malnourished, so they're really taking their fasting to a whole nother level. Um, but one of the women that they took to the hospital was just 23 years old. And she told authorities that she wanted to leave Am Shinriko, but when she tried, they drugged her and confined her to a crate uh, where they didn't let her leave. So over the months of the investigation into this cult, I believe it lasted at least six or seven months because they tried to gather enough information. Police ended up arresting 398 members of this cult in 240 separate cases with different charges of varying degrees. So these charges ranged everywhere from petty traffic offenses and licensing offenses, just to kind of get them off the streets and practicing this religion, um, all the way to much more heinous crimes, including murder, conspiracy, kidnapping, assault, obstruction of justice, harboring, and theft. So... Despite the sarin gas attack of 1995 being the most known crime committed by Aum Shinrikyo, and also arguably the worst crime because it targeted such a large group of people, um, they were conducting poison and gas-related crimes as well as kidnapping and murder crimes relatively frequently before this. 
Um, sources vary on just how many of these attacks were actually perpetrated by members of Amshin Rikyo, but given the timeline of events beginning just after they manufactured chemical and biological warfare agents for the first time, um, as well as Asahara instructing the members to prepare for the end, it is highly plausible that most, if not all of these crimes were in fact committed by Amshin Rikyo members. So to start, in 1989... Uh, parents and family members of Om recruits, which is a which I mentioned earlier was the organization against Om because they thought that they were basically brainwashing college students. Uh, they complained to law enforcement officers that Om Shinrikyo was kidnapping and physically assaulting recruits and family family members of recruits. Again, in 1989, this time in November, a lawyer who was representing anti-OM Shinrikyo groups, whose name was Mr. Sakamoto, um, both him, his wife, and their one-year-old son were all kidnapped and murdered. Uh, Their murder wasn't known until after the Tokyo subway attacks. Uh, At this point, they were still believed just to be missing. But their bodies ended up being found after the 1995 subway attacks, after multiple cult members have actually confessed to their murders. That's crazy. I know. They were really going through all lengths just to try to keep this under wraps and from going to the police. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. So then in June of 1993, so a couple of years later, um, noxious fumes from a building that was believed to be affiliated with Om Shinrikyo, uh, but not confirmed, caused around 100 people in Tokyo to complain to the authorities. Um, and then nothing really came of that until after the 1995 subway attack that a member of the cult came forward and told Japanese officials that that was their headquarters um, where the smells were being smelled from and that it was around that same time that they had dispersed anthrax into their into the air basically as an experiment they used anthrax even yeah like i think they were researching anthrax and like the effects and they just released it from their building that's crazy yeah like they i didn't like they really used everything they really did like they were testing anything they could to try to i feel like they were trying to artificially create the Armageddon that was being prophesized. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's crazy. Yeah. So in September 1993, again, two cult members both pled guilty to carrying dangerous chemicals onto an airplane in Perth, Australia. And then in June 1994, there was a sarin gas attack in Matsumoto, and this killed seven people and injured over 200. In July of 1994, so just one month after this, they began manufacturing AK-74s, which is a type of assault rifle, um, at their chemical manufacturing facility. And it was also around this time where more people reported a hazardous odor being smelled near one of their facilities. Um, however, it was never really confirmed or discussed about what this noxious smell was. And then in December 1994, so less than a year before the subway attacks, cult members broke into the Hiroshima factory of the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries uh, in order to steal technical documents on weapons such as tanks and other military artillery. 
in January 1995, so when Asahara began prophesizing about Armageddon, Tomomitsu Nimi Gas was released, which targeted a man named Hir- Hiroyuki Nagoka, who was the head of the Association of the Victims of On Om Shinriko. So another official in like an anti Om cult group was targeted. Um, but he didn't die. However, he did become comatose. And that's the last I heard about him. I'm not sure if he recovered after becoming comatose. And then in February of 1995, so this one is a month before the subway attack, a village office administrator was kidnapped. After being kidnapped, um, Om Shinrikyo members killed them by drug injection before burning their body in a microwave incinerator, which was located in an underground facility belonging to the cult. Following this, another follower of the cult, whose name was Otaro Okidna, who was a pharmacist, um, tried to leave the cult and as a result was hanged in the cult facilities before his body was also burned in their microwave incinerator. Um, when investigating and collecting evidence from this incinerator, investigators found the remains of at least eight other individuals. And then a couple weeks before the subway Tokyo attack, so this was in March 1995, cult members assisted in a firebombing attack on the Om Shinrikyo headquarters in Tokyo. Um, and their reason for bombing their own facility was that they were trying to gain public sympathy for the cult just before their planned attack on March 20th. So the police investigation into Om Shinrikyo ended up being massive. They ended up conducting over 500 raids in over 300 locations that were suspected to be related to the cult in the months that followed the attacks. And during this raid, they confiscated over 66,000 pieces of evidence. So Om Shinrikyo was rightfully stripped of its legal religious organization status in October of 1995 and was declared bankrupt in 1996. However, that didn't stop the organization uh, from just quitting while they were ahead, basically. Um and they ended up rebranding and are now going by the name Aleph under a brand new leader. And believe it or not, Aleph is actually still active today and has been the suspect of various terrorist attacks throughout the 2000s and 2010s, as recently as 2017. That is terrifying. I know. And it's it's worldwide. I, like the attacks have been in, I believe, in the States. They've been in Russia. They've been in Japan. Oh my gosh, that's so scary. Yeah, so if you see anything mentioning Aleph, um, run. Mention it to authorities. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, that's so scary. I didn't realize they were still active. I know, I didn't either. Like, I had no idea they rebranded, but it's essentially the exact same. They follow the exact same doctrine of religious beliefs, but under a new name. How are they able to do that? Like, they were a known cult. They have done so many terrorist attacks and they're still allowed to continue. I know. I I don't understand it either. I think part of it is because it was already such a big organization before the subway attack and stuff. And so once it went under new leadership, more people, obviously some people would quit the religion, but definitely there are some people extreme enough to want to follow something like this. And I think when it's like a worldwide cult, it's pretty hard to 
put a full stop to it. To stop it. Yeah. Wow. That's so scary. I know. But um, the last thing I had really to say about this cult, because otherwise its history will go from like 1980 to 2017. Um, after the very lengthy investigation into Omshin Rikyo and the multitude of crimes they've committed, 13 members of the cult, including the leader Shoko Asahara, were executed by hanging. Um, even after appeals, Shoko Asahara appealed his um, death sentence in 2008, but it was denied. And in on July 6th and July 26th of 2018, all 13 of the cult members sentenced to death were uh, hanged to death. I don't. I find it kind of shocking that hanging is still an execution form around the world in like 2018. I know. Yeah, I agree. I um. I did read that like Japan is incredibly strict on who receives the death penalty. Mm. And this was like basically the biggest death penalty case of Japan in like at least recent years, just because so many people related to one organization received the sentence. Wow. I can't believe they were only executed in 2018. I know they were just chilling in prison for like 20 years. Yeah. Do you know how old um, Asahara was? Because I'm curious to see, like, how old he was, if he was even worth being hanged, or if he would have just died in prison. So he was he was apprehended in 1995, mm-hmm. um, and he was born on March 2nd, 1955. So in 2018, he would have been 63 years old. Wow. Okay. Fair enough. That's yeah. still pretty young, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's... I, I don't really support the death penalty, but given the amount of tragedy and terror, terrorism oh, yeah. he caused, I think it's a fair sentence. It was um, definitely the safer option. Oh, absolutely. Because mm-hmm. if, if he was allowed, basically, to live and continue running this cult, like, who knows where we would be now with it. Exactly. I also think like having over 66,000 pieces of evidence also helps to kind of solidify the beyond a reasonable reasonable doubt yeah. um, issue there. Oh, yeah. I would have so, to agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Especially when some of that evidence is literal confessions. Yeah. Right? From multiple Supported members being evidence. like, yeah, we helped kidnap this person. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, thank you, Rebecca. That was very interesting. I had no idea about this cult at all, so that was just fascinating. Um, And now I'm going to pass it on to Nicole to tell us a little bit more about the biological warfare aspect of this episode. Yeah, so I'm going to kind of not move away from like the sarin because I do talk about sarin at the end, but I do want to touch on like the anthrax portion that they uh, were briefly involved with um, and how like biological warfare kind of contributed how they're connected, I guess. Um, But I do want to start by saying that the history of biological warfare is actually super in-depth and intricate. Um, There's whole academic papers published solely on the history and use throughout the years. Um, Because of this, it's quite hard to try and condense everything into the limited time we have. So there are certain little pieces here and there that um, I wasn't able to touch on, but I do recommend reading further into some of the sources we included. uh, And you can find those on our website. 
But before we dive right into the history aspect, I do want to briefly just discuss what biological warfare is. It's kind of self-explanatory, but basically it's just the use of biology, in the sense microorganisms and or toxins that are found in nature um, to kill, injure, or sicken people, livestock, or crops. So when weapons are made out of these microorganisms or toxins, these then become what are known as agents. So you'll hear me talking about agents or bioweapons kind of interchangeably throughout the episode. And depending on the agent and the dispersal method, it can be used in isolation to kill one or very few people or on large scale attacks, causing injury and death to thousands of people. And environmental contamination can occur, um, which does pose a long-term population threat. So biological attacks can range kind of from simple hoaxes to widespread use of these agents. So I do know there was a, um, I do think it was an anthrax hoax or whatnot in the States through, someone just said they had laced stuff with anthrax and sent them to the president. Um, but then you also have the widespread use, which I'll also get into in this episode. And the most likely agent used is Bacillus anthracis. And this is the bacteria that causes anthrax. So anthrax, anthrax itself is an infectious disease that commonly affects animals. And then this can then affect humans. So some early examples of the use of bioterrorism and biological warfare can actually date back to around 400 BC, and they continue to be used today. Um, I don't know if that's surprising or not. I think everything can end up being related back to 400 or BC times. I was kind of shocked about this. Um, but some examples were that arrows were sometimes dipped into decomposing bodies, as well as mixtures of blood and manure before they were shot at people. And then, um, and again, I'd like to bring up the whole like diseases you could get from yeah. blood, from blood, and exactly. Manure. That's disgusting. So why would you drink it? <laughs> Pay eight thousand dollars to drink blood to not know what you would be <laughs> getting. Literally. Anyways. <laughs> Um, there's also examples found in Roman, Greek, and Persian literature from around 300 BCE that describe the use of dead animals being thrown into wells to contaminate them, in addition to other sources of water around them. Um, Romans, okay, they were very creative back in the BCE times, I will say, because Romans were also said to have thrown clay pots filled with venomous snakes and live scorpions <laughs> inside them at their enemies. They would just chuck them like live animal bombs. Ew. That's yeah. insane and yeah. gross. It's sad. <laughs> I think I'd rather yeah. a grenade than a clay pot filled with snakes. Filled with venomous snakes. Yeah. Ew. No, thank you. So then if we fast forward a millennia and then some, in 1155, human bodies were actually thrown into wells in Tortona, Italy by Emperor Bar Barbarossa. Um, in 1346, the bodies of those who died from the plague were catapulted over city walls by the Mongols in hopes to spread the plague. I shouldn't be laughing. I'm sorry I'm laughing. I just can't imagine this actually happening 
it's a pretty so visual description, yeah. so I don't blame you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 1495, the, again, the blood, but of leprosy patients was mixed with wine and then sold to Spanish enemies. In 1650, rabid dog saliva was fired by the Polish towards their enemies. In 1675, a deal was made between German and French forces, and this was kind of the first deal of its kind to be made, and this was to not use what are known as poison bullets against each other. Do you think that that deal was then voided in World War II? Yeah. Because I feel like dropping bombs of like mustard gas or whatever counts as a poison bullet. Yeah, I think they forgot about it at that time because this was 1675. I, I don't know. Yeah, like a good 300 years before. <laughs> I don't know okay. how long. I mean, like I do kind of touch a lot on like World War II later on. Um, but yeah, the French, British, and U.S. all thought that like German forces were stockpiling and going to be like this huge bioterrorism thing in World War II. Fair enough. Um, so I do think that deal was off the table by then. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, in 1763, Native Americans were gifted blankets from the British um, that used to belong to smallpox patients. In 1797, uh, Napoleon had hoped to spread malaria to people he did not like. So he flooded the plains around a city in Italy just to make it more wet and more homey for malaria infections or diseases. In 1863, clothing that was used to, or sorry, in 1863, clothing that used to belong to yellow fever and smallpox patients were sold to Union troops by the Confederates. Um, so was yeah. that in the States? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Um, wow. These are early examples of biowarfare. And this kind of just illustrates how many ways people will go about trying to like infect and sicken and kill others um, when like hand to hand combat just isn't working for them. But it's it was very odd to see it like laid out like this because a lot of this I wouldn't have considered like biological mm -hmm. warfare. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, it's, like, flying over a city and, like, releasing a gas that, like, um, is contaminated with, like, the flu or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's I thought the same. Or, like, the anthrax attacks. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I picture. Yeah. Not that's throwing so dead crazy. bodies in wells and catapulting them. Yeah. yeah. Very it, interesting. Yeah. So, it's definitely, like, the intention behind it. Because I feel like during the wars, at least, there were just dead bodies everywhere so like that couldn't really be considered bioterrorism but if they're taking those bodies with the purpose of oh these guys are probably sick let's go yeah. f over the enemies and see if that happens or see what we can do that then becomes bio warfare unfortunately yeah no that's very interesting um yeah so it's kind of just like cool and there's a whole bunch of uh like other similar but different examples through history. Those were just kind of the main ones. Um, but it wasn't until the 1900s, though, that kind of biowarfare reached this new sophisticated height of science or whatever. Um, 
So during the First World War, the German army developed a plethora of biological agents, including anthrax, glanders, cholera, and a special type of wheat fungus. Um, the sources I found didn't specify what wheat fungus it was. I'm assuming it's the one that makes you um, crazy. That's also the deriv- the derivative of – derivative is not the right word – of a drug of some sort. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think I know what you're talking about, but for the life of me, I also Eager, can't remember the name Eager, of it. E- e- yes. Ergot? Er- or I think it's Ergot. <laughs> yes. We'll look it up. Ergot. ergot I'm going to guess that one. Um, yeah. So Ergot is a type of fungus that can grow on grains such as rye and wheat. I'm, yeah. Okay. And I'm so going to assume that symptoms one. Symptoms include dizziness, convulsion, psychosis, and or gangrene. I'm going to go with that one. In the past, they used it to induce childbirth. Oh. What? That makes me comfy. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> I don't like that. Oh, my gosh. Okay. okay. No, I don't Tune either. Tune in later, and I'll go into depth on that. <laughs> oh, biological warfare on one side and labor on the other. Oh, that's crazy. Okay, anyway, sorry. Continue. Um, so I'm going to guess that's the wheat fungus they're talking about. I don't know, though. Um, but not long after this, the 1925 Geneva Protocol was created and signed by 108 nations. And this basically just had them agree to not use chemical and biological agents against one another. Um this kind of had no standing or ground to it because no verification or compliance strategies were addressed. So there was nothing that like other nations could use against them if they were using chemical or biological warfare agents. So that's a little shady. Um, but with the signing of the Geneva Protocol, apparently France already had um, a bioweapon program in place. So they kind of like reserved an exception for this. Um, And this was quote, the right to arm itself for retaliation in kind. That is to prepare to strike back um, with weapons. Should it be attacked first end quote. So basically we won't go first. If something happens, we're going to use it to defend ourselves. Um, So this retaliation exception kind of soon became the international norm. Um, So they shifted from that complete ban of bioweapons and agents to kind of a no first use policy. And surprisingly, the government weren't actually the ones to initiate research into bioweapons within North America itself, at least. Um, It was rather Frederick Banting. He was the Canadian scientist who discovered insulin. He created the first private bioweapon research center in 1940. And not long after, the U.S. government started up their own research along with the British and French, and this was in fear that the German forces were going to attack first with their own bioweapons. But apparently, they were never really seriously considered by the German forces. But instead, it was the Japanese forces that began a large-scale program to develop bioweapons. So I think this also would have played an important role on um, Shinrikyo with them being Japanese. Like They just had the resources for it available to them. Um, but yeah, it was believed that these bioweapon tools could, quote, further Japan's imperialistic plans, end quote. 
At its height, there were over 5,000 employees who were hired to work at this research facility, and as many as 600 prisoners a year were actually killed um, because of human experiments. And this was just one out of 26 centers they had. Um, So that's a lot. (laughs) That is a lot. Oh, my gosh. I forgot that prisoners were used for experiments. Yeah. It's... Wow. There's a lot of that in this, um, which I was not expecting. I... Again, always forget that prisoner experimentation happened. Um, but in this case, too, like not specifically specifically this center, but there was also experimentation on just like unsuspecting civilians, which is seems very illegal and not right. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I guess that like not like I mean it's not, but it is. Um, but if you're kind of also going behind the backs of these, like, uh, whatever signed by these nations that say, oh, we're not going to build bioweapon facilities and then continue to build massive bioweapon facilities. I don't think they really care at that point, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at least 25 disease causing agents were tested on both prisoners and unsuspecting civilians. And experiments included exposing thousands of victims to the plague, to anthrax, syphilis, and others in an attempt just to, like, develop and observe the effects on humans. And then afterwards, if it did result in death, autopsies were performed to understand how they impacted the human body. Um, so a lot of death, unfortunately. And over a thousand water wells in Chinese villages were contaminated during the war to study the effects of cholera and typhus outbreaks. In addition, there were plague-infested fleas that were dropped over Chinese cities or they were spread through uh, rice fields. And this actually caused epidemics that continued years after the Japanese surrendered and they killed over 30,000 people in 1947. So a lot of death has arised. Wow. Yeah. I can't believe that it like lasted so long. Yeah, there's unfortunately a lot of like potential of long-term effects once it gets into the ecosystem and environment. Yeah, that's really scary. Yeah. Um, And so in 1942, the War Research Service was established by the United States, and this is where anthrax and botulinum toxin were the first to be investigated for their potential as bioweapons. They were stockpiled. Well, I have a fun fact. Do it. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) You can't feed babies honey because the botulinum toxin in it will kill them. Oh, I did not yeah. know it would kill so them. Babies can't have honey because their immune system can't digest it enough. Interesting. Yeah. Sorry. I just I you said botulinum toxin <laughs> and I was like, I have to show this yeah. right now. Okay. Sorry. Because that's the same stuff in Botox, is it not? It's the same thing, just a different form. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Judging by Rebecca's uh, head nodding, I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, so these toxins or agents, I guess, were stockpiled by June 1944 to ensure that they'd have unlimited resources if the German forces did decide to use biological agents first. So pretty well from what I've learned is that 
every like biological weapon and like stockpiling that happened was always done in anticipation of someone else doing it first. So like everyone always had it, but they just always thought someone else would make the first move. But yeah, so anthrax bombs were also tested by the British just off the northwest coast of Scotland in 1942 and 1943. And they had like anthrax-laced cattle cakes um, stockpiled after that. I looked up what a cattle cake was, and I think it's just like a hamburger. That's what my interpretation of it is. Do you my have a- interpretation was like like a like a cow patty like oh okay because it's a concentrated ration for cattle processed in the form of blocks or cakes so i don't know if it's like cow food like processed food for cows or if it's processed cow in cake like form for humans you know, honestly, yeah. both of them would probably cause the same effect. Yeah, because if we, if like a human were to eat like cow meat that the cow ate those yeah. cakes, then it would probably do the same thing. But yeah, either Regardless, way, yeah. I think it makes sense. <laughs> Regardless, humans are getting sick. Yeah, yeah, because I could not find a discrete definition. Um, but yes, after the war. Um, this is infuriating to me, but some of the Japanese biowarfare researchers were convicted for war crimes by the Soviets. But in exchange for information on the human experiments they conducted, uh, the U.S. granted their freedom. So some of these war criminals went on to establish pharmaceutical companies. Um, they became respected citizens in the world. And post-war research articles on human experiments were actually published by um, an, an individual named Masaji Katano. Um, but when referring to the experiments that they conducted in China during the war, rather than keeping the word human in their human experiments, um, they replaced human with monkey. So everything was seen to be done as experiments on primates and not actually humans to hide the fact like the atrocious fact that they were experimenting on humans that's despicable yeah oh my god yeah what a way to work around the rules yeah you would have you'd think that someone from like the ethics board (laughs) would check in on their their research yeah yeah i don't know what the ethics board was like way back when um or how you would even check that like if i read an article now that like unless they had pictures and examples like specific examples outlining the use of primates i wouldn't know um but now it's gonna make me think are they just using the word monkey in all of current literature that i will read so makes you wonder Um, But yeah, the U.S. did continue their research throughout the 50s and 60s on more um, offensive agents. So rather than the wait to be hit and then use biowarfare strategies, they wanted the first hand. So they had these offensive agents. 
And they did conduct their fair share of experiments as well. They did open air tests, animal testing, as well as exposing human volunteers and unsuspecting civilians to microbes. And they were both pathogenic and non-pathogenic. So bacteria were released off boats off the coasts of Virginia and San Francisco, infecting around 800,000 people in just the Bay Area alone. And over 200 sites were exposed to aerosol bacteria, including transit locations such as bus stations and airports. In 1966, the U.S. wanted to study the widespread effects of pathogens in big cities. So the New York metro system was contaminated with Bacillus globigii a, quote, non-infectious bacterium used to stimulate the, or sorry, simulate, not stimulate, the release of anthrax, end quote. So basically, they wanted to see if they could release anthrax um, effectively through these systems. Um, President Nixon decided that offensive bioweapon research wasn't really worthwhile. Um, it was deemed like the poor man's weapon or something. I forget the exact word they used. Um, but the, he then signed the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention, the BTWC, in 1972, which is basically just an improvement of the 1925 Geneva Protocol. But the major difference was that the BTWC prohibited research on bioweapons. But again... I think that's kind of a good idea. Yeah, I agree. But it felt... Okay. <laughs> they had no way of verifying and ensuring this. Like they just didn't oh. in, impose like methods to hold people accountable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was going to say, it seems silly to like make something illegal, but then like, it's okay. You can research and come up with these things. You just can't use them. Yeah. Cause no, I'm like, I agree. you're playing with fire. I agree. And so, yeah, even after signing the BTWC, the Soviet Union established a massive bio-warfare project, and they would go on to run a bunch of different experiments, um, and eventually a large cover-up actually happened. So they explained it as an anthrax outbreak um, happened because meat from anthrax-contaminated animals were sold on the black market. This was not the case whatsoever, um, but the incident killed at least 66 people in 1979, and it later came out um, that it was caused by a clogged air filter that just wasn't replaced in one of their bioweapons factories. That's crazy. Yeah. So, just a little whoopsies and 66 people are dead, so love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and Kind of, like, disturbingly, no one really knows what the Russians are working on and what happened to the weapons they were working on prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, so that's kind of that's, terrifying. That's extremely scary. Yeah. So Putin... Especially after please. our Litvinenko episode. Yeah. Please don't. <laughs> I beg of you. Father Putin. <laughs> He won't hear. It's fine. <laughs> he'll just get flagged. We're just really testing our limits with Putin, yeah. aren't we? <laughs> yeah. We <laughs> really are. But in addition to the uh, question marks around the 
what's going on in Russia, um, there is still continued research on biological agents today in certain countries. Um, over 1,200 biological agents exist that can cause illness or death. Thankfully, only a few are situated, um, or sorry, are suited well enough to be used for biowarfare or terrorism. I don't know if that's like fortunately, but I guess it's better than having 1,200 things that can kill you in various ways. Um, but yeah, very small amounts, as in like, Max a couple pounds or less of these agents would be needed to kill thousands on large-scale attacks in metro metropolitan areas. And some dispersal methods, ag these agents can be spread through several means. And so the most affected, effective sorry, is through the air as aerosol sprays. So the agent is dispersed as fine particles through the air and is thus fairly easy to inhale and then get all caught up in your lungs and cause a whole bunch of problems. Um, they can be used as explosives, such as through artillery, artillery, missiles, and bombs. This method isn't really as effective as aerosol dispersion, though, since the blast often destroys um, much of the agents, um, and it can often leave less than around 5% of the actual agent left to be spread. There's also the contamination of food or water, but very large amounts of the agent would be required for this form of dispersal. And it's often kind of unrealistic amounts um, to inflict a lot of damage, which is often what these people are seeking when they decide bioterrorism is what they want to do. Um, and it's also quite difficult to introduce agents into water sources after it passes through like water treatment facilities, um, especially in kind of urbanized areas in rural areas. I don't think this would be much of an issue, um, but yeah, to get past treatment facilities would be a big thing. There's also the absorption or injection into the skin. This method would be an ideal kind of for an assassination attempt, but not likely used for mass casualties. And to be able to, to detect these uh, agents within the environment, at least, there are specific testing measures that exist. And detection can also occur by doctors reporting diagnoses or illnesses caused by any of the agents. Uh, regarding protective me measures, it's mostly PPE that exists. So masks such as gas masks or high-efficiency particle air filter masks can be worn. Um, but if there's any break in the seal or if it's not worn properly, this can call cause leaks and render the mask basically ineffective. Um, but one kind of good thing, I guess is that most airborne agents don't penetrate unbroken skin and few will remain on your skin or clothing after the fact. So if faced with an aerosol attack, removing your clothing can actually reduce the majority of surface contamination you would face. And then showering with just soap and water can also remove um, up to 99.99% of the few organisms that may still be left. So presently, there are protective vaccines that exist for anthrax, Q fever, yellow fever, and smallpox. Um, but the immunization of non-military personnel isn't really recommended on a widespread um, 
idea or widespread concept by and no government agency has recommended this so far for non-military personnel. So don't think we are at risk for anything. Like it doesn't seem like a huge risk as of right now. Um, If it does get to be a thing, there are vaccines that exist. So good to know. And an author of one of the articles I read, um, I'm going to quote it because I didn't really know how to reword it. And he just did a really good job of saying it as it is. But he said, quote, unfortunately, the same knowledge that is needed to develop drugs and vaccines against pathogens has the potential to be abused for the development of biological weapons, end quote. So basically, like if you have the education and knowledge to help people with these like vaccines and stuff like that, that same knowledge can be used for evil. That's very scary. Yeah. So basically if it gets in like the wrong smart person's hands, which most crime that happens in that case, that's what happens. Um, But yeah. Well, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. Um. And so while I briefly touched on anthrax at the beginning and like briefly what it was, I figured I'd go into a little bit more depth about what it is. And so it's a bacteria, um, Bacillus anthracis, as I mentioned, and it's a gram-positive rod-shaped bacteria, and it naturally occurs in soils around the world. Um, It's quite rare for the United States, um, but it's most commonly found in Central and South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Central and Southwestern Asia, Southern and Eastern Europe, as well as the Caribbean. And basically when spores enter into the body, they can become like activated. And once they activate, they can continue to multiply and spread within and throughout the body. And they produce a toxin that causes this illness. And so spores can enter your body through inhalation, consumption, or open wounds or injection, I guess. And so these methods of entering the body account for four different types of anthrax. So there's cutaneous, inhalation, gastrointestinal, and injection anthrax. So cutaneous anthrax is the most common, but thankfully considered the least dangerous. It can take one to seven days for infection to appear after um, exposure, and if left untreated, up to 20% of people can die. But with proper treatment, all, almost all, majority of them, no, pretty well all of them, um, they survive if treated properly. I just didn't have a stat, so I wasn't going to say all of them, but it's pretty well all of them. That's kind of comforting, um, though. Yeah. But yeah, it's like not all doomsday-ish, thankfully. Um, but symptoms include blisters or bumps that can be itchy in addition to possible swelling around the sores. But after these bumps or blisters kind of disappear – they are then replaced by painless skin sores that have black centers to them. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Pirates of the Caribbean um, or the Pirates of the Caribbean, however you say it, um, (laughs) when Jack Sparrow has like the black circle on his hand. It's kind of like that, but a wound in a way. Okay. Yeah. Very spooky. Yeah. It's not appealing. Um. But I guess they're painless, which I would not have expected. That's kind of nice. 
Yeah. And most commonly, these ulcers are found kind of on the face, neck, arms, or hands, which is less nice, I guess. Um, the most deadly form of anthrax is through inhalation. So it can take anywhere from up to a week to two months for symptoms and infection to develop. Um, when left untreated, it almost always results in death. But with proper treatment, the survival rate increases from close to zero to about 55%. Um, so not amazing, but still some possibility of survival. Some symptoms include fever and chills, shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, headache, extreme tiredness, and profuse sweating. And those are just some. There's a list of uh, symptoms. Next is gastrointestinal anthrax. This occurs when undercooked or raw contaminated meat is consumed, and it affects the throat, esophagus, stomach, and intestines. Without proper treatment, more than 50% of those infected will die, but survival rates end up increasing to about 60% if proper treatment is given. And this form of anthrax has rarely been reported in the U.S. I'm not so sure about Canada here, up here for us. Um, so it's not like a major, major concern, obviously still a concern, but not huge. Some symptoms of this type of anthrax can include, but are not limited to the swelling of neck or the glands in your neck, painful swallowing, nausea and vomiting again. Um, bloody vomiting is quite common. There's diarrhea and bloody diarrhea, which is also common, Fanti fainting, excuse me, and stomach pains. And lastly, injection anthrax has similar symptoms to those of the cutaneous anthrax, but is found kind of deeper under the, under the skin. Thankfully, there have been no reported cases in the United States, but surprisingly, well, I don't know if it's surprising or not, uh, but within parts of Northern Europe, there's been a type of anthrax identified in heroin injecting drug users. Um, so if you partake in the heroin in North Europe, watch out for that, I will say. So does that mean that there's anthrax in the heroin, most likely? I don't know if it's the heroin or, like, through the needles or however. I, I honestly have no idea. Yeah, that's very intriguing. Because if it, if it was just the heroin, I don't know why it would be specific to North Europe. Like, I feel like... yeah drugs have such a wide net or wide range on where they disperse to. Right. I have no, I don't do heroin, so I don't know <laughs> what the drug trade is like when it comes to heroin mm -hmm. and how commonly traded it is. Um, but that could be a possibility. Okay. Yeah. Cause it, yeah, that's very weird. Yeah. And I don't know why it's just like specific to Northern Europe. Like, yeah, you would think it would, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like everywhere there's such a wide dispersal range for everything that it's odd that it's so localized. Yeah. So, again, similar to cutaneous, you get those small groupings of blisters or bumps and then those black sores afterwards. But abscesses have also been seen with this type of anthrax that are kind of deep under the most superficial layer of your skin. And they've even been found in... Um, the muscle near the injection site. 
So the main treatment to all of these forms of anthrax at the moment are the use of antibiotics. And this is both oral antibiotics or IV antibiotics. And hospitalization is only needed um, in extreme cases. So it's kind of important just to seek treatment as soon as possible to reduce the risk of ending up in the hospital. Um, And although not biological in nature, I just wanted to quickly touch on sarin as well. Um, It is a man-made toxin that was initially developed in 1938 as a pesticide in Germany. Um, But because this was also big with um, Am Shinrikyo, I figured I'd briefly touch on it. But like Rebecca said, it's classified as a nerve agent and main exposure is through skin or eye contact as well as through inhalation if it is released into the air. Water and food contamination can also occur um, and clothing can surprisingly release sarin after contact, which then can spread and expose others. So like Rebecca was saying, the people that tried helping ended up also passing away and like running away from the station. They're also passing that on to other people. Um, symptoms can appear within seconds if exposed to the vapor form or if exposed through liquid forms, symptoms can take a few minutes to appear. So it is still quite a quick appearance. That's really crazy. Yeah. When I was reading it, it just sounded so nonchalant being like, yeah, it could take like seconds to minutes, but I'm like, that's huge. Like to have something affect your system, your whole system in seconds to minutes. That's insane. That's really quick. I am thinking a lot about that Contagion movie that we started in September 2019. Yeah. And how scared I was of that. That is a great movie. I still haven't finished it. (laughs) No, me neither. I just remember being like, this is my worst fear. This is so scary. And then like, what, four months later, we were in a pandemic. (laughs) 2020. I was like, this is awesome. I love this. Yeah. Yeah, Ben and I watched Contagion a couple times throughout the pandemic, and we were like, this feels too real right now. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize this was a documentary. That's the one with Gwyneth Paltrow? Sure. I've blocked it out. Yeah. <laughs> it's too scary. Oh, yeah. I have too, because it was terrifying. But yeah, as a nerve agent, this basically just means that the body's not really able to signal to the muscles to turn off in a way. So a lot of people exposed just become like tired and they die from tiredness, I guess, because they like a big part of it is that they just can't keep up with breathing. Like breathing is just too laborious for them to do. Their muscles just won't do it. Um, Low to moderate doses of sarin exposure can result in like watery eyes, blurred vision, chest tightness, diarrhea, um, and confusion to kind of list a few symptoms. And then exposure to larger doses. Um, This is the scary bit, but they can result in loss of consciousness, convulsions, paralysis, and even respiratory failure. So to effectively combat any exposure to sarin, antidotes do exist that can help recover um, your health. Um, but it is recovery isn't as effective without treatment. Like it is possible. It's just more dangerous and it poses a higher risk of not recovering. Um, 
And because sarin becomes like activated within your body, there are also um, antitoxins, I believe they're called, that exist to prevent the activation or at least fight the toxins that are activated. Um, but yeah, that's all I had on sarin. I didn't really go into too much since we were going to do biological, but um, still terrifying nonetheless. Yeah, definitely not not a fan. Yeah. I feel like every episode we do, not every, but the majority of episodes we do, that's like one new fear to add to my list. I'm like, hmm, biological warfare. Am I going to be able to take the subway transit now like, through Toronto without thinking? Hmm. Well, especially because they're still active. Yeah. Like, that's the scariest part. And that's what we know of. Yeah. Like, there could be so many that we don't know of that are just, like, plotting. Right? I know. I, I have understand. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I have a friend, and she's terrified to touch anything without, like, wiping it down first because she's, like, so paranoid that there's going to be anthrax on it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, like, I, I get that. it. It's really not that much of a threat. But yeah. now I'm like, okay, no, she, there's something there. Definitely. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> there's something there um i completely forget what i was gonna say sorry so. no no no. that's okay it a hundred percent wasn't gonna be relevant re- relevant knowing me. <laughs> um so who knows that's okay well thank you nicole for adding another fear to everyone's list you're welcome um it's a pleasure <laughs> you're so kind um <laughs> So our next part two, I guess, of cults is going to be on Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh's communities and forensic epidemiology. And so are they the cult that used like weaponized salmonella? Yeah, in a restaurant. Okay. Yeah. So that will be very interesting and I'm excited to learn about that one. Um, and I did find a joke. Very exciting. Even though this wasn't a funny episode, it's just a light joke. Um, so what is the toughest cult to join? Um, Helter Skelter. <laughs> I don't know. No. no, difficult. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that was way too easy. <laughs> way too easy i'm thinking of like what initiations are so difficult like right? so hard yeah so i think we have called difficult initiations this is again off topic <laughs> okay you, everyone should look up the anthill anthill kids okay it's a, is that a cult oh yeah really yeah. Thank okay. you for giving um, me a new new uh, rabbit hole to dig into. Well, maybe we do need to yeah. make this a three um, part. We do anthill kids and different types of cults for the third part. Oh, let's do it. They're a, they're a Canadian one. They're from Quebec. Okay. They used to break. Let's each, do it. They used to have to break their kneecaps as an initiation, from <gasps> my understanding. Yeah. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's terrifying. So. <laughs> Part three, Ant Hill Kids. <laughs> Wait a couple weeks and we'll tell you all about them. <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, 
And on that note, uh, Rebecca, did you want to tell people where they can find us? I would love to. So people can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Uh, if you go to Twitter, we are at WT Forensics PC. We post all of our sources and also some source images and some fun information about our podcast at whatthefrensics.ca. And if you want to reach out to us or get in contact, whether you just have a question or you have a, a case suggestion, you can contact us at whattheforensics at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and yeah, make sure to give us a review on iTunes um, or rate us five stars on Spotify. We would love to read your reviews and kind of get some feedback on what you would like to hear, what you're tired of hearing about, just like fun things, just good audience interaction. Um, but yeah, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm-hmm.